Well, good morning. It's very good to be here with all of you this morning. Uh, t- this week has been obviously a little crazy with Thanksgiving, and we traveled to Michigan to be with my wife's family for a few days. And then upon our return, my wife and my youngest daughter were sick. And I kept praying not only that they would get better, but that I would not get sick. And so fortunately, in God's grace, uh, I'm here this morning. I'm feeling fine. And Lord willing, that will stay this, wash my hands a lot. You know, we have four children, and so we're quite accustomed to sickness just constantly moving through our house. But uh, nonetheless, it's great to be with all of you this morning. And uh, why don't I pray to begin, and then we will dive into our passage. Spirit of God, you are the giver of the word. And so now I pray that you would quicken my tongue so that I can accurately talk about your word and give all of us ears to hear so that the truth of your word would uh, kindle a passion in our hearts to love Jesus more and to follow him. We pray this, Jesus, in your great name. Amen. Princeton religion professor Elaine Pagels, in her recent book, Why Religion, A Personal Story, seeks to explain why human beings in the 21st century, with all of their scientific knowledge, persist in being religious. She uses her own experience to answer the question she poses. You see, Pagels grew up in a secular home and walked away from evangelical Christianity, which she had embraced in late adolescence and carried through on into uh, early adulthood. Sometime later, following the death of her six-year-old son, and then soon afterwards, her husband, she longed for relief from the tremendous grief that she experienced. And so she sought to reconnect, as she put it, with God. For her, however, nature became a sort of temple, the place where she could encounter the divine presence. Yoga and a specific form of Buddhist meditation became for her a new religious ritual. And the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas became her guide. What's clear from her book is that she rejected the Bible and historic Christianity and constructed her own means of getting close to God. Professor Pagels is not alone. As Eric mentioned, I work with 20-somethings. And this demographic, in particular, more so than any other in our culture today, is abandoning organized religion and creating their own personalized spirituality. Some have called it the buffet approach to getting close to God, but this is nothing new. From ziggurats in ancient Mesopotamia to Mayan temples in North America to Hindu shrines and mosques today, humans are and always have been masters at building structures, creating rituals, and finding guides they believe will get them closer to God. We all have an innate drive to connect with God, to find our deepest longings met in him, to derive meaning from our lives. 
from the divine. It's what we were made for. It's how we were made. Yet, as with so many other human drives and desires, there's a brokenness, a corruption in our souls that horribly distort that wonderful and right impulse. You see, while we all long to get close to God, we try to do so on our own terms. I'm certainly guilty of this. If I think about my own life, uh, examples sadly come readily to mind. After offending my wife or my children with an angry word or impatience, I might sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit pointing out to me that was wrong, that was sin. Anybody relate to that? Okay, you don't have to show your hands. But rather than acknowledging my wrong to them and to God, what do I do? I wait. I act as if the passage of time will assuage my guilt, remove my shame, and actually somehow allow me just to start over and get close to them and to him again. I try to get to God and close to him on my own terms. How about you? How do you attempt to draw near to God on your own terms? Do you think sometimes in the back of your mind that church attendance or service somehow makes you more pleasing to him? Is there something that you possess that others lack that you believe deep down in your soul God prefers and that secretly gives you favor in his sight or earns you some basis of blessing. You see, we all long to be close to God. We even try to get close to God. The problem is we do it on our own terms. We are so good, each of us, you and me, at creating our own temples, establishing our own rituals, and finding our own guides that will help us fill the deepest longings of our souls. And that longing is to be close to the one who made us. Yet it's so ironic, is it not? That very impulse to do it on our own terms doesn't actually get us close to God. It actually pushes us further and further away. So how is it that we can actually get close to the one who made us. How can we truly know him and be known by our creator? Well, John, a friend and follower of Jesus, included a story in his account of Jesus' life and ministry that answers these very questions. He did this by showing us what Jesus did and who he is at a place where people 2,000 years ago sought to get close to God. So this morning in our time together, we are going to consider each of these, what Jesus did and who he is in this particular place and what the implications of that are for us today. So if you would, open your Bibles or turn on your electronic device, whatever the case may be, and go to John chapter 2. We'll be in John chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 12. If you don't happen to have a Bible, that's not a problem. 
you can simply listen as I read along. We'll begin here at John chapter 2, verse 12. Listen as I read this, the first part of this narrative that highlights the actions Jesus takes in order to get us close to God. Here's God's word. After this, he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Let's pause there and reflect on what we've read. Following his miraculous sign in Cana, which we actually considered last week, where Jesus turned water to wine and demonstrated his glory, he is now, along with his mother, his half-brothers, and his newly minted disciples, traveling uh, 16 miles uh, to Capernaum. They stay there but a few days as the Passover is approaching, and they intend to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate. It's important to understand that the Passover is one of the high holy days in the Jewish religious calendar, and it commemorates the time when God miraculously delivered the Israelites out of their slavery, their captivity in Egypt. And the central uh, element of that celebration is a, is a commemoration of the slaughter of an innocent lamb, its blood being placed on the doorposts and the door frames over uh, the, the main entrance of each Jewish home that protected them from the judgment of God against the Egyptians, the shedding of that innocent lamb's blood. Jesus and, this and his entourage arrive in Israel's capital to find it bursting with pilgrims from all across Israel and, in fact, the entire Roman Empire. In the center of all this activity, of all this celebrating, was a structure in Jerusalem called the temple. And you can see here uh, an image behind me that just demonstrates the prominence of the temple, actually a, real, a campus, a compound, in fact, there in Jerusalem. And to appreciate the temple and its architecture, we have to understand its function. You see, temples in the ancient Near East in Jesus' day were places where people believed heaven and earth met. And for the Israelites, it was the structure where the one true and holy God, the one who had delivered them out of slavery in Egypt, manifested himself in a special and a unique way such that he could be close to them and they could get close to him. Even though 
even though he is holy and they were sinful. Now, there were specially prescribed rituals involving sacrifices and the lighting of candles and bread on tables and incense and many, many more things surrounding uh, the functioning of this temple. And there were also guides. First and foremost, there's what we would call the Old Testament, the scriptures, a very clear guide in terms of what the purpose of the temple was and what all of these rituals uh, were and how they were to be performed. And there were also priests, men whose full-time vocation were to perform these rituals. They were to represent the people before God. The temple, uh, as you can see, uh, had these large open spaces. Uh, those we can refer to as the outer courts. Within that, there's another walled section smaller, and these were the inner courts. This is where people would gather, depending upon their level of ceremonial cleanness, could actually approach and get close to God. And this is probably where Jesus, actually this is where Jesus has this interchange that we're looking at in this story. The heart of all of this is the building in the middle, the temple proper. If you could think of, for the Israelites, the temple being the palace of God, the place where he reigned and ruled with them and over them. And if you were to see here on the next slide and were to take the, the roof off of that central uh, building, the temple itself, you would see that it has two chambers. Now, people could be in the outer courts, Gentiles. Jews could be in the inner courts. But now into this building, only the priests could enter on a daily basis that, that first chamber, the holy place. And they, as I mentioned, had some very specific responsibilities and duties in there. Separating that room from the next one was a large 60-foot high curtain that was four inches thick. And within that next room was called the most holy place. And only the, the high priest once a year could enter that room. If this building sort of represents a temple, then that most holy place represents the throne room of God, the place where God would uniquely manifest his glory. But only that priest could enter after performing certain elaborate rituals and cleansing and purification rites. So you see, this whole temple, its rituals and its guides said on one hand, this holy, most high, one true God longs to be close to his people. But don't get too close, lest you die, for you are a sinful people. This place, the, the, these courts, were teeming with people there to celebrate the Passover. It was full of those who wanted to worship and sacrifice and pray. They longed to get close to God. And this is what God wanted. This is why this structure existed. And upon entering the outer courts, Jesus discovers not just worshipers. He discovers livestock. He discovers their keepers. And he discovers money changers. Now, it was impractical for people traveling across uh, many miles 
to bring their own animals for sacrificing. And so merchants would be there to provide the pigeons, the lambs, the goats, whatever they would need to sacrifice at the temple. And of course, they may have to exchange their money as they're coming from foreign places, and so there were money changers. So this was not particularly bad in itself. However, the location was very problematic. Instead of being placed outside the temple grounds, here they are in the outer courts with all this buying and selling and talking and animals making all kinds of noises in a location reserved for what? People to worship and to pray. And you can imagine how difficult it must have been to be able to do that. Uh, uh, Imagine if you went down to the heart of the Castleton Square Mall on Black Friday and tried to have a very serious conversation with someone or to, to, to meditate or to pray. A little distracting. And undoubtedly, that's what's going on here. There's also some uh, evidence in the historical record that seems to indicate that the Jewish religious authorities were taking a substantial cut from this business and were using the temple as a sort of bank. And so after traveling several days by foot, Jesus is undoubtedly eager to enter the temple and worship with his family and his disciples, only to discover that this temple itself has become a flea market. He's incensed. He's full of righteous anger. He locates probably a piece of rope lying on the ground. He unfrays its end, turning it into a whip, and then he uses it to drive out the animals and the merchants and the money changers. Now let's stop here and consider exactly what Jesus is doing. First we see that Jesus fought so that people could get close to God. Jesus fought so that Jesus could get close to God. It's interesting, I've worked with university students for 25 years and now I work with uh, 20-somethings here in Indianapolis And there's always this sort of portrait, a prevailing picture of Jesus in the minds of many. And it's what I call hippie Jesus. The smiling, long-haired, sandal-clad sage, always practicing some kind of nonviolent protest against the machine. This is a prevailing notion. But I'm here to tell you, this is not hippie Jesus. Or in our broader culture, especially this time of year, There's the picture of Jesus, right? The helpless baby in a manger. This is not helpless Jesus. This is a a picture of Jesus who is angry. He deliberately finds material to craft a whip, and then he uses it. He almost certainly uses it on the animals, and I'm inclined to think he actually uses it on the people that he finds there that are the target of his ire. And notice how John describes what he did. He drove the people and the animals out. He poured out their money. He overturned their tables. He told them, in fact, he commanded them to take those pigeons away. What we have here is a picture of a religiously, righteously angry Zeal consumed Jesus. His passion for the temple and its purposes were devouring him. They were consuming him. They were eating him up. 
and the outlet was his wrath. In verse 17, we're told that Jesus' disciples remembered that it was written in the Psalms, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, it's unclear if they remembered this specific verse from Psalm 69 in that moment or maybe later after his resurrection. Whatever the case, it's interesting that this particular passage came to the disciples' minds because in this passage, the psalmist is crying out to God due to the opposition he's encountering from his enemies. His enemies are resisting him because he is zealous. He is very concerned about the temple and the proper worship of God in it. What's important to note is that the disciples see Jesus as the fulfillment, as the voice and the actions of this psalmist. And this is a helpful thing for us, I think. So often we wonder, what's the Old Testament all about some perplexing stories. We don't quite always get the meaning, but one of the ways we need to understand our Old Testament is it's a promise. And Jesus in the New Testament, we see the fulfillment. It's an arrow that's shot, and Jesus is the bullseye, the target that it hits. And that's what's going on with this psalm. That's what's going on in this story. And the disciples, they get that. The bottom line Jesus fought so people could get close to him. He went to violent extremes to ensure that people could worship God and that temple, the temple reflected God's holy purposes. And that's the first thing we see Jesus doing. The second thing, the second action we should take note of is that Jesus acts like he owns the place. He's acting like he owns the temple. Listen to verse 16 again. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. This is no small things. The temple was considered the house of God, the palace of God, if you will. And so by saying that God is his father, Jesus is claiming to have uh, a very intimate, a father-son relationship God himself. Now, good Jewish boys, good Jewish rabbis don't go around making that kind of claim. But Jesus did, and then Jesus acted in light of that. He's claiming as a son an authority, which is how that would have worked in those days. If you're the son, you have claim to the estate. And so he's claiming authority over the temple. He's acting as if it's his. And so he acts to drive out these people who should not be there. This is a, a great claim to his deity, a great claim to ownership of the temple. He's acting in that way. So what are some of the implications so far that we can draw? How does this relate to us? What's the so what of a story that took place 2,000 years ago. I have two thoughts. First, God longs to be close to his people. God longs to be close to his people. Jesus' indignation isn't just at the corrupt practices going on there. He's angry that these things were keeping people 
from worshiping and being close to God. And this is the storyline of the entire Bible, where God is constantly intervening in a gracious way to remove the barriers and the things that keep people from getting close to him. There's a refrain in scripture that takes place over 30 times in the Old Testament where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then God acts to bring that about. And this temple and all of its rituals are a central element to his effort to be close to the people. And I want you to let this sink in. Yes, God is great and he is transcendent he is above all the creation. He is, he is more than our minds can conceive. It is right of us to think of him in those terms. And he's an immensely personal being. He wants us, people who are made in his image, to relate to him in a relationship, to be close to him, to enjoy him, to know him. He's great and distinct, and he wants us to be close and personal and near. You know, for me, given my family of origin, my default is to acknowledge, yes, God is great. He's, he's up there. He expects to be worshiped, but it's harder for me to wrap my mind around the fact that he desires a close, intimate, even parent-child kind of relationship with me. How about you? Do you believe that the one true God, that your creator, wants to get close to you and you to him? As Jesus and God are one and the same, do you believe that Jesus wants that? The reality is that Jesus fought to make that possible. The second implication, we cannot get close to God on our own terms. We cannot get God close to God on our own terms. We cannot do as we please when it comes to things related to closeness with God. In our culture, our preferences and opinions are what matter most. That's what get, gets elevated. And the, this whole idea of the... Uh, buffet approach to God is so much about our own personal opinions and preferences. But let, let me give you a little illustration. So imagine I'm driving down Allisonville Road, coming from the north, so I'm driving south, and I'm late to church on Sunday morning, which with four kids, I have two teenagers, you bet, that's often the case. And I come to the stoplight there at 91st Street, and I have a left turn arrow. Now, my preference is that I would not be late. But if that light is red, what if I just go, well, you know, my preference today is actually that the light would be green. In my opinion, this red light is actually a green light. And what happens if I go and it's red? Oh, potential cataclysmic events, right? My preference meets reality. And in every instance, my preference will lose. Why do we think it's any different with respect to God and getting close to him? But yet our culture thinks that that's the case when it comes to religious truth or what the Bible says. 
preference always trumps what's true or revealed. And we swim in that and don't think we're immune to that. You see, he's the creator. He gets to make the rules. He is holy. He is glorious and morally excellent and perfect in every way. And it's actually good that he makes the rules because the way he sets it up is that we can actually, when we abide by the way he's created it, we can actually get clean in order to get close to the holy God. He has the final word. There is no buffet. There is no a little of this or a little of that. And so I think the implication is for all of us to put aside our people-constructed temples, our own human rituals and our faulty guides. We need to put away our idols and our self-righteousness that make us, makes us feel good about ourselves, that we somehow think grease the wheels to get us close to God. We need to destroy those things or put away those beliefs in the back of our minds that we try we try to think and believe make us acceptable to God or feel better about ourselves. We cannot get close to God on our own terms. Well, if God longs to be close to his people and we can't get close on our own, then how on earth does it happen? Well, in John's gospel, Jesus' activity always points to his identity. That is, what Jesus does always takes us to who he is. And it's the same thing here in this passage. And so let's continue on looking at this narrative, still answering the question, how is it that we can get close to God? Let's pick up in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, said to Jesus, the Jewish leaders, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So imagine the scene. Overturned tables are scattered about. Pins and stalls are open and empty. Coins cover the floor. What had been a noisy, bustling marketplace a few minutes ago is now quiet, and all eyes are locked on Jesus, a humble-looking man from Galilee with a particular fire in his eyes and a homemade whip in his hand. What Jesus has done is more than just release some animals and dump some money on the ground. He's challenged the established order of things at the very heart of Jewish religious life and the people in charge of it are not going to be happy. This cannot be overlooked. In fact, it is not overlooked. And suddenly the crowd parts as a group of smartly dressed of Jewish religious leaders rush to confront the disruptor of temple protocol. 
they are undoubtedly cross, though their anger is birthed from something completely different than Jesus. And you can feel the tension rise as these men approach and then stop in front of Jesus. What miraculous demonstration can you point to that gives you the right to do this, they barked. These men are undoubtedly familiar with the Old Testament and its prophets, probably understanding that Jesus has acted in some kind of prophetic way. They also understood that prophets of old would always point to some miraculous sign as the basis, the authority of doing what they did. And now they go to Jesus and say, what sign can you point to that gives you the right to do these things? And undoubtedly, some of the Passover pilgrims that are there are wondering, is Jesus a prophet? Perhaps he's the long-anticipated Messiah who'd be zealous for the temple. Who is he? I'm sure some of them thought. And at this moment, the story is at, at its highest point of tension. Everybody is wondering, what will Jesus do? What will he say? Who will he show himself to be? And so Jesus speaks, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, and three days later, I will bring it back up. Now, Jesus' riddle-like response confuses the religious leaders. As he often does, in fact, he cloaks truth from the hard-hearted, but speaks such that his followers, either then or later, will get what he means. So not understanding, they ask incredulously, you would presume to rebuild this temple by yourself, one single man, that took hundreds and thousands of people 46 years to build? Now, perhaps the Jewish religious leaders were so shocked at what Jesus said, they just stood there while Jesus walked away. Or maybe they considered his words to be the rantings of a lunatic as he walked away. Whatever the case that question is left hanging. The tension is never resolved. This story's climax is not realized here. No, there's no neat resolution to this narrative at this point. No, that comes later. That comes actually at the end of John's story. John gives us a little foretaste, a little foreshadowing in his, his sort of commentary here in verse 21. He says, but Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from his dead, his disciples remembered that he was saying this. You see, Jesus wasn't saying that he would rebuild that building stone by stone. He was saying that he would rebuild his body cell by cell. That's the authority. That's the basis he can do these things. Listen how the Apostle Paul says it in Romans chapter 1. Jesus, the son of David, a descendant of David, was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. 
What's so interesting is that Jesus' first sort of public demonstration, his public act in John's gospel foreshadows his last great public act, his resurrection. At the very beginning, John forecasts the happy ending. So let's fast forward two years. It's once again the Passover, and Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem. Zeal for his father's house indeed consumes him. It devours his very body. For on a hill outside of Jerusalem, in the shadow of that great temple, Jesus' blood is shed on a cross. And he suffers the horrible death only given to slave criminals. And what was the only confirmed charge against him? That he claimed to be God. And at the moment of his death, only several hundred yards away in that temple, that veil separating the holy place from the most holy place, from top to bottom, was torn in two. And do you know what that says? It says it's now possible to get close to God. Three days later, that tomb that Jesus was placed in, it was empty because he had the power to resurrect his own body. He rebuilt the temple. And this is the sign that establishes his authority and his identity that we see right here in John 2. He has every right to clear the temple. He has every right to say it's his father's house. It is his. Temples are places where heaven and earth meet. And John tells us at the very start of his gospel that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word, the divine son, God, took on human flesh. And that word, that word dwelt, it's tabernacled. He, he tented. It's the Old Testament tent before the ta tabernacle, before the temple. It's that language. The tabernacle isn't, the temple isn't a building. The presence of God where heaven and earth meet is in Jesus. John 2 affirms it. Jesus' resurrection confirms it. In Jesus, heaven and earth meet so people can meet God. In Jesus, God comes close to us so we can get close to him. You see, what this all says about who Jesus is, he's the resurrected, true temple of God. And he possesses zeal and authority over his father's house. That's what this story is about. That great temple, all of its rituals, all of its guides, they're giant arrows to Jesus. And that's what Jesus is saying here in John 2. It's all about me. Those are just a shadow. I'm the reality. And they're meant to teach you about me. And some people got it and believed, and some did not. And because Jesus is the true temple and has authority, he does away with all the rituals and the requirements and he has every right to prescribe how people can come to him. And so at the beginning, 
I ask the question, how do we get close to God? And so here's the answer. You don't need to go to a place. You only need to turn to a person. You don't need to conduct rituals. You only need to recognize there's nothing you can do. You don't need to listen to other guides. You only need to believe him and his word. If Elaine Pagels were here today, I would say to her first, I cannot imagine the depth of your pain and grief. It is beyond my experience. But I know, I know this, we can't come to God on our own terms. But he made a way. He did it. Jesus fought. Yea, he even died. So you and me can get close to him. Whether driven by loneliness or fear, pain or self-righteousness, the desire for forgiveness or healing, we all do what Elaine Pagels does. We try to make our own ways to God. But the truth is, there's only one way, and it's a great way, and it's a person. And that's the message of John, too. Because Jesus alone is where we meet God. Let us trust his word and get close to him. Because Jesus alone is where we meet God. Let us trust his word and get close to him. Let me pray. We worship you, Jesus, as the true temple, as God in the flesh. Thank you that you fought, you died, so our sin can be taken away and we can actually get close to the Father and enjoy him forever. Help us, Lord, to believe these things and live in light of them. It's in your name, Jesus. Amen.